Hello, everyone. This is Larry Horn, President and CEO of MPEG LA, and you are listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 91 of IP Fridays. Before we jump into today's interview with Larry Horn and talking about patent pools, but before we jump into the interview, I have some news for you from the intellectual property um, community. First, some news from the UK about the UPC, the Unified Patent uh, Court Agreement. Um, in an announcement this week, the Joint Committee on Statutory Instruments, the JCSI, said the Unified Patent Court um, order 2017 would not need the special attention of both houses and can go forward unchanged for debate. The instrument will now be debated in both houses and a, debate, um, a date for the debate could be scheduled as early as next Wednesday. So the ratification of the UK cannot be far away, but uh, note that the ratification in Germany is on hold, uh, on hold at the moment because of a um, complaint filed with the Federal Constitutional Court by an attorney at law. Also, the European Patent Office has published new guidelines for examination in the European Patent Office and they will be valid starting from November 2017, so from now on. Let's jump into the interview with Larry Horn. I'm very excited to be joined by Larry Horn today. If you don't know who Larry is, he is uh, acting CEO and president of MPEG LA since 2006 and has been with the company since their inception in 1997. And also, I'm joined by Tom O'Reilly, who is Manager of Research and Public Relations of MPEG LA. Thank you for being on the call, both of you. Uh, you're very welcome. We're glad to be here. Thank you, Ralph. All right. So, um, can you briefly let our listeners know what MPEG LA is all about and what exactly it is you are doing? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, and again, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, MPEG LA pioneered the modern-day patent pool in response to uh, a market need. And that market need was the need for efficiency and licensing around uh, uh, digital video standards in particular at that time. Uh, in the 1990s, when the consumer electronics industry adopted the seminal international digital video standard known as MPEG-2, which your listeners may know is used in HDTV, DVD, cable, and satellite, Industry leaders recognized that the technology would not achieve ubiquitous deployment and assure a successful transition to the digital age if product development were hindered by litigation or the inaccessibility of patent licenses. So MPEG LA, uh, with the support of industry leaders, decided to combine the intellectual property uh, around this standard into a patent pool that provided commercial developers with worldwide access 
at a reasonable and transparent price. This so-called one-stopping stop, sorry, this so-called one-stop shopping model allowed patent holders to realize a reasonable profit while fostering the interoperability that helped digital video technologies create a trillion-dollar global business. So that's how we got started. All right. And um, that's not the only patent pool you're managing. So um, what are patent pools exactly and why are they important? You already touched on that, but maybe you can elaborate a little more. I'm glad to, uh, Ralph. Uh, yes, today we, we manage uh, some uh, 12 pools uh, around various technologies. What patent pools do, they play a very important part of, in a role in the market. Uh, they make standards-based and other important technology rights uh, from many different stakeholders, widely accessible to users under a one-stop license, as I already said. And the one-stop license consists of the essential patents. Uh, they're often referred to as standard essential patents or SEPs, and they provide this one-stop access as a convenient alternative to negotiating direct licenses with each patent holder. So in other words, you still have in the market the option to take or to negotiate individual licenses with individual patent holders, but in the pool, you can get a license to the intellectual property that is essential from all of those patent holders under a single one-stop license at the same rates for everyone. Um, just let me tick off, I think, a few of the uh, qualities that make a patent pool a patent pool, and I've already referred to them very generally. One is uh, they include standard essential patents. Uh, and those standard essential patents are normally based and entered or included uh, upon independent evaluation by uh, technical experts. Second, the license is non-exclusive. And by that I mean, again, that licensees retain the right to negotiate direct licenses with individual patent holders. The, to be very clear, the, pool that MPEG, the pools that MPEG-LA provides, offers, Uh, are alternatives to the, to the direct licenses. They are not the only way to get a license under these technologies, but they're an alternative that is for the convenience of the market so that they don't have to engage in the cost and endless negotiation that would go into getting those direct licenses, assuming it were even physically possible to accomplish that when you have as many patents as we do in our pools. Uh, third point is the same terms are offered to everyone under our license. It's the only license that we're authorized to offer under each of these standards. If somebody wants some kind of a different arrangement or something that fits their circumstance differently from others, although we haven't tended to run into that problem, uh, they're free, again, to license bilaterally. But if they want the pool license, it's one pool license, one size fits all. Um, and finally, something we pride ourselves on particularly, and I think uh, uh, we, we take special pride in having brought to the market, which somewhat lacked before the advent of pools, uh, we bring great transparency to the market. If you, if you go to our website, uh, you'll see in, in great detail an explanation of every term of every license, uh, and you'll see a listing of every essential patent that has been entered into every pool. Uh, I'm not sure uh, that was very common uh, before we brought that to the market. Uh, we look very much upon our customer, our, our licensees as customers, as, as we should uh, and as they deserve. And we think it's important that they know exactly what they're getting, no mysteries around it. 
and that uh, they uh, they have the right to uh, voluntarily enter into this license or not as they see fit based on knowing uh, all the facts that we present to them. So again, transparency is a very important part of what we do, and I think you'll see that reinforced by our website, mpegla.com, if you should go to it. Now, let me, basically, you, you asked, uh, why are they important? Uh, I gave you, I've given you the kind of the, the qualities of a patent pool and what it is in summary. Uh, I, I, it's fair to say that starting with that first license, which I referred to, for the International MPEG-2 Digital Video Standard some 20 years ago, our pool licensing model has helped produce the most widely used standards in consumer electronics history. Now, we can't take sole credit for that uh, because obviously the standards in and of themselves were of a very high quality, uh, developed by the standard-setting organizations who created them. But it's it's certainly, um, certainly uh, uh, I think, uh, worth mentioning that I think it would have been hard to foresee the widespread adoption of those technologies if a pool had not been available as an efficient alternative for licensing. Uh, you can imagine that without that, uh, uh, well, let me let me tick off some of the some of the things that a pool accomplishes. One is efficient access, as I've said repeatedly. Another is freedom for licensees to operate without uh, fear of uh, of uh, consequence on the patents that we license. Uh, reduced litigation litigation risk, which is a big issue for the entire market, and uh, business certainty that licensees can depend on when making their business plans. Uh, for how they want to um, uh, uh, how they want to expand technology to the market, and all of these factors drive wide market adoption and growth of these technologies. Uh, and they, they they on one hand they enable intellectual property owners to generate substantial returns on their assets uh, through royalties on related product sales, and at the same time uh, they they strike a balance by coming up with a reasonable price, which licensees are able to uh, a plug in with uh, in order for them to use these technologies in making creative products for consumers and the market. All told, today MPLA operates licensing programs covering a variety of technologies that consist of more than 14,000 patents, and I'm consulting my notes here, Ralph, uh, just so I don't get it wrong, uh, consists of more than 14,000 patents in 84 countries with some 230 patent holders and more than 6,000 licensees. And our company uh, has all the infrastructure to service uh, both the licensor and licensee side. Uh, and that's the key to um, solid patent pools throughout the market. Uh, I have a question. Um, how do they exactly work? Uh, do you um, have, like, uh, do you set up small companies that then take a non-exclusive license of all these patents? Very good question. Uh, the way it works, we, we each pool is separately administered uh, and subject to the authority of the patent holders, uh, well, subject to the design of license that the patent holders created for that pool. MPEG-LA, the company, uh, through its own owners, has no control over the individual management of the pools, administration of the pools. Again, they are the terms of license in each pool is dictated by patent holders to that pool exclusively. Uh, we don't set up a separate company for each of them. Rather, we, we just set up a, a separate licensing mechanism. And that licensing mechanism is one under which the patent holders get together with, with our guidance, of course, 
to agree among themselves to pool their patents first. And then they, uh, once having done that, they hire us as the licensing administrator. And of course, we're involved throughout the process in facilitating all of these, all of these elements. And then they give us a sub-license uh, to their patents uh, for the limited purpose of licensing them for the field of use represented by the standard in each license. So each program stands on its own. Each program is subject to its own set of sub-licenses that create it and has its own set of patent holders that own essential intellectual property in each of the pools. But they're not individually separate companies. Okay, so you have um, separate license agreements between you and the licensees and then also agreements uh, between the licensors and you. Correct. Right. That's correct. Okay. Ah, oh, great. Um, I have a completely other question. I mean, um, obviously, patent quality is very important for you because uh, they have to be enforceable. Otherwise, people wouldn't really want to take a license, maybe. <laughs> so what is your opinion about the aftermath of uh, of the Ellis decision of the Supreme Court that um, was taken as a little shock for many patent holders. Okay, uh, glad to share that with you. Uh, I would start out by, by, before I address those two particular things, by saying that, uh, as I said earlier, uh, patents are included in our pool because they are essential to the standard, and that is determined by an independent evaluation. Uh, if a patent is found or declared to be invalid or nullified by a uh, judicial body of final jurisdiction from which no appeal can be taken uh, in a particular country, then it is subject to removal under our license. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, the invalidity of a patent means that a patent ceases to be a patent. And of course, uh, upon that final ruling, uh, we no longer want to include an invalid patent uh, Uh, in our pools if, if that should occur. Uh, so we have mechanisms in place to prevent uh, patents from continuing in the pool that are no longer patents uh, if and when they should become uh, nullified or invalid. Uh, thankfully, that hasn't uh, uh, happened. Uh, in any. Uh, I'm trying to think if it's ever happened, but if it's happened, it may have happened once. Uh, that said, you're referring to two points, Alice and IPRs, uh, that are all about invalidity. Uh, and again, uh, there's no, you know, anybody in our pools, licensee, licensor, whatever, you know, is free to challenge the validity of a patent. We have no prohibition against that. Uh, that might even be a problem if we did. Uh, so uh, there are, you know, there are, these issues are not without consequence for us. So we are very interested in them, as you can imagine. So your question is not totally off the mark. Uh, there are many. Uh, so with first, with that respect to Alice the Alice decision from the United States Supreme Court, uh, I think uh, I'm afraid to say there are many who refer to that decision well beyond its narrow application, though I'm not denying its importance. Uh, I think uh, there are many uh, who would uh, like it to be a declaration a decision against software patents or patents that are, that are uh, reduced to practice in software, and that's absolutely not the case. Uh, software patents uh, are just an implementation mode for technologies, and Uh, they can be very much uh, patentable subject matter as uh, any other implementation. Uh, that's, not the, that's not what Alice said. What Alice said was uh, that uh, the case dealt with whether certain claims, 
as I understand it, about a computer-implemented electronic escrow service uh, for facilitating financial transactions covered abstract ideas that were ineligible for patent protection. And uh, the court held that uh, the patents were invalid in that case, not because they covered software, but because the claims were drawn to an abstract idea and, most important, implementing those claims on a computer was not enough to transform that idea into patentable subject matter. So in other words, if you had an abstract idea and you came up with a computer implementation of it, which nobody else had ever bothered to uh, try to patent, that alone was not enough to transform it into patentable subject matter. The idea itself is what the patent is about. The fact that it would be implemented in a computer would not be sufficient in and of itself. That doesn't mean, though, that that couldn't be part of acceptable claims for such a patent. So, again, I, you know, I, I, I think that that decision, properly construed, has probably uh, uh, been a necessary um, thing for the market to deal with and for the Supreme Court to have dealt with. So, again, if it's properly understood, I, uh, you know, it's not, uh, I don't really have um, uh, any negative opinion about the, uh, that case at all. I think the only aftermath I would be concerned about is that people tend to refer to it in a way that was not intended. Uh, you asked about IPRs, uh, which stands for inter-party reviews. It's uh, an item that has uh, been instigated as a result of the, uh, uh, the 2011 uh, patent re so-called Patent Reform Act, AIA, America Invents Act. And they are proceedings whereby patents that have already been granted uh, may be found invalid, uh, by the same patent office that granted them, even though the patent review board that uh, deals with that issue uh, uh, is in a uh, different area uh, of the uh, of the agency. Um, I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to single out IPRs. I mean, obviously, if a patent's invalid, uh, it you know it shouldn't be a patent. We can't really dispute that. But I think there are some serious problems with IPRs. Uh, one, they, they are handled in the same uh, agency that granted them, and it would kind of be good to uh, know that that agency has its act together when it comes to the granting of those patents, which begs the question, why were they granted in the first place? Second, it gives people a second, third, fourth, fifth bite at the apple, so to speak, uh, which, uh, which uh, may end up invalidating a patent uh, uh, according to a very picayune thing that really shouldn't be a subject matter for invalidity. Uh, so I think on balance, that plus many other things in the American Invents Act have tipped the balance. Uh, I think it's important to have a balance between patent holders and patent users and patents and licensing. And I think the AIA and in particular the IPRs have tipped that balance in a way that gives an unfair advantage uh, uh, to, the, uh, to those in the market who would uh, like to, uh, uh, shall we say, attack patents. Uh, uh, and uh, aw away from the balance, which is very important. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I can uh, really understand your arguments there. <laughs> um, in the US, I've seen some decisions where, um, in patent infringement cases, where the, uh, where where the plaintiff, of course, sought an injunction but didn't get an injunction, although he actually won the case, but just got um, a, a license, basically. Um, uh, some people say that U.S. patents may have lost their teeth. Um, if yes, or if no, or if yes, what do you think should be done about this? 
That's a very good question, and I think you've hit upon uh, a very important issue, which has uh, further contributed to that imbalance I just referred to. And in fact, the lack of injunction in the U.S. may be the single biggest factor uh, that has uh, led to that imbalance. Um, uh, I would say my, my reaction is this. Uh, intellectual property rights uh, are property rights, or should be. Uh, and uh, in the current state where an injunction is difficult to sustain in the United States, uh, I think it's tantamount to removing the property from the intellectual property right. Uh, and that's not a good thing. You know, uh, when you talk about property rights, most people think about their homes, their real estate, uh, and uh, nowhere that I'm aware of that, that, that respects private property rights uh, is one uh, prevented from enjoining someone from trespassing on your property. Uh, I think it's very unusual. If somebody comes to your home who's not wanted, uh, the police can bring them away, uh, take them away. Uh, and uh, similarly, I think intellectual property rights uh, have been stripped of a very important quality that makes them property rights, and that is the right to an injunction upon the, as you say, the proving of infringement. So I think it's a very unfortunate circumstance, which again has tipped the balance in favor of those who would like to attack patents. Uh, and, and again, I'm not opposed to those. They, they, want, they should have the right to attack patents, of course, but it should be a balanced thing. Uh, so I think your point is a good one, that in fact, uh, it has, the U.S. patents have lost their teeth. Uh, we have, um, well, and let me, uh, we have a kind of a strange uh, occurrence here in the U.S. and worldwide to some extent that um, what, is a, what has been labeled as efficient infringement. Uh, and basically, there are a number of companies who are not fearful. Well, let me put it this way. When you take away the injunction, you are left just with money damages. And there are many companies for whom money damages is not a serious consequence. They can afford to litigate for years and years, uh, they may get the damage award, uh, award uh, reduced or even eliminated in that process. Uh, or even if they don't, uh, they've kept the money in their pocket during that period of time. So it's not really a threat to them to stop their infringement. But an injunction, of course, is because it tells them to stop. It's more powerful than money damages uh, and doesn't uh, countenance uh, this idea of efficient infringement, which is, again, an idea of continuing to infringe while you debate whether you owe money. Uh, you know, people often argue about the injunction and say, oh, that would be terrible, especially in the smartphone. For example, if you were to enjoin the smartphone from being sold because of an infringement of one element that appears in the smartphone. And, you know, it's kind of strange because I don't know of one case, nobody's ever told me of a case, I certainly don't know of all cases, where that has been the result of an injunction. Uh, an injunction has been a very positive thing because it forces the parties to negotiate reasonable license terms in the face of the fact that they could be enjoined. But rarely, if ever, again, uh, have I ever seen that uh, happen. Whereas if you have money damages over somebody's head, uh, it, it, it postpones the negotiation. But again, an injunction makes uh, a negotiation front and center, and as a result, the uh, patent user gets its due, and the patent holder also gets its due. So again, I, I think that's been a problem, uh, and one that has uh, set back the United States in terms of its uh, enforcement system, in terms of its patent values, 
and in terms of its uh, of mining and innovation and mining its own technology. Uh, if you look for a model where people have gotten it right, uh, I would say uh, Germany is far and away the fairest <laughs> and most comprehensive, <laughs> and the uh, judges are the most skilled at this, and both sides get a fair shake at infringement with the threat of an injunction if you should be successful in your infringement case. So as a final point, uh, even though MPEG-LA doesn't rely on enforcement, uh, we're very fortunate that we've accomplished our more than 6,000 licensees. And I think in 20 years of our being, I think uh, uh, enforcement actions have been brought by our patent holders uh, in defense of their patents uh, only against some 40 defendants uh, by my last count, maybe a couple more, uh, maybe 45 or so, but a very small number out of 6,000 licensees. We look upon enforcement as uh, the exception, not the rule. We're a very patient company. We want everybody to understand our licenses thoroughly. We don't want to have any mystery surrounding them. Uh, and we will explain everything uh, to a potential licensee until there are no objections remaining, in which case we can sign a license. Obviously, that doesn't happen in all cases, of course. And there are times when enforcement is a very necessary thing. Uh, and when that happens, to your comment, I would say that the world, I think, could uh, benefit from having more consistency of enforcement uh, in countries worldwide. I think that's become an issue. I think uh, if the United States is not as vigorous in its uh, uh, protection of property, as I said, restoring property rights to property, uh, and Germany is, uh, and uh, China has its own uh, thing, which sometimes uh, may favor its own industries, then I think you create an imbalance worldwide which is unfortunate for the future of innovation in this world. Yeah, then you see things like forum shopping on these kinds of things. <laughs> Correct. Right. Correct. Um, I'm not asking for a world court or anything, but I'm asking for a little more concern. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, no PCT4 or something where enforcement is handled by WIPO or something. <laughs> <laughs> no. Although, by the way, uh, Ralph, there is a there has been uh, floating in Europe a proposal for a unified uh, uh, patent courts, as you may I know. I know. Yes. Uh, but yeah. they are brought to a to a halt now by. Um, yeah, some strange things that happen in Germany. <laughs> With I understand. Yeah. I understand. Uh, as I said Germany is a very reliable system, and that, at the end of the day, that's what you want is reliability. You want to know where you'll get a fair shake and what the likelihood of success or failure would be in a patent suit. And I think that's good for both sides of any case. Yeah, but now it seems that one single uh, attorney at law in Germany has uh, brought the whole. A UPC, the Unified Patent Court System, to a halt. So <laughs> let's see how that will work out. <laughs> I understand. Uh, but again, Germany remains uh, a bright light uh, in the uh, enforcement area. It has you know, judges who are experts in this area and who are assigned, uh, particularly to patent cases, and that's and has a special patent court. That's a very good thing. Yeah. Okay. So and an injunction. And an injunction. Oh yes, okay. and a, and a preliminary injunction that can be very quick, <laughs> a couple of days or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing, um, I want to uh, get back to your core business. So, where do you see your main goal in the future as as a business uh, as uh, MPEG LA, and where do you see patent pools in five years from now? Uh, again, a very good question. I, I think you've done this before, Ralph. So I uh, appreciate. <laughs> I, I appreciate the uh, intelligence of your questions. 
Um, first, uh, MPEG LA will continue. Let me be clear. Patent pools are not the solution to every market problem. They are the solution to some problems. And normally we find that they are a solution that requires, uh, relies upon having many patent holders holding fundamental technologies around a standard or other uh, platform, uh, and many users who would benefit from having access to that intellectual property under a single license. Uh, so uh, we, uh, so to be clear, uh, we think that's kind of a, a, a table setting uh, for when patent pools can be very, very useful. And we don't see that use going away. In fact, we, we think that usage uh, should become stronger in the years ahead, especially uh, with uh, the kinds of enforcement and patent disputes that you've referred to, uh, which pools tend to avoid. Uh, also, I might add that I think pools not only have proven themselves as a reasonable vehicle for licensees getting access to important technology and averting the risk of litigation in the process, but also I think they are the best way in most cases for patent holders to get a return on their uh, research and development investments and their intellectual property investments. So that's not going to go away. I think, uh, in fact, uh, they're gaining more favor as uh, in recent years because I think people are starting to recognize that. Um, so what is our future goal? Our future goal is to continue to maintain uh, our share of this patent pool space. Uh, we recently started a new pool for enhanced voice services uh, called EVS, uh, which is you will see, I think, in the months ahead, starting to propagate in actual implementation in various phone systems, uh, carrier systems throughout the world. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, uh, for, you know, the smartphone can do so many things, but it started out as a phone, uh, a phone in which somebody could have a conversation. And interestingly, the quality has not kept up with its advancements in other technologies, and EVS uh, will be the answer to that. Uh, because it uh, combines both the uh, best in audio and the best in voice uh, over uh, a very efficient bandwidth, uh, in a very efficient bandwidth uh, usage uh, that it enables. So, uh, again, that's a new program. It'll be going up. Uh, and we, again, are uh, looking at other programs. We've started a recent facilitation for the next generation broadcast standard in the U.S., and I think we will continue to do those more traditional patent pools as far as the eye can see. Um, we're getting into new areas, though, uh, where we think the market can benefit from a patent pool. And we've actually, it's very near and dear to my heart because uh, when I joined uh, MPEG LA uh, in its startup uh, some 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, uh, I had come from heading up business development, marketing, and sales at a biotechnology company. And I've always felt that uh, there may be a place uh, for patent pools in the biotechnology industry. Uh, and I've literally, if you can use the word, evangelized on that from the day that I set foot in this company uh, to, to, to world audiences. That said, biotechnology uh, has two qualities that tend to be a little bit different from consumer electronics. One is uh, they, don't have, they don't normally have standards. And second is in the area of therapies, drug therapies, uh, they normally uh, prefer exclusivity because the, the parties that uh, undertake or have developed those technologies uh, uh, look for a very, to make a very huge investment. Um, uh, they take great risk in getting drugs approved 
which can cost as much as $2 billion. So in, they, they don't really want to share their, their uh, R&D with, uh, with someone else um, at risk of, uh, at risk of uh, not having exclusivity. Uh, but anyway, we in the last, oh, I guess, six months, Tom, I think, uh, have announced a patent pool for a platform technology that is going to enable uh, many different applications um, uh, throughout agriculture, industry, and drug therapy. Uh, and it's a technology known as CRISPR. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, and again, I'm looking at my notes here, Ralph, so I don't get this wrong. Uh, it stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. What it is, it's a naturally occurring tool in the immune system of bacteria that can be reconfigured and introduced into human, animal, or plant cells to literally edit the genes, to make what's wrong right or to replace what's wrong, uh, in effect by changing the way they are written or read. Uh, it's fast, it's cheap, it's relatively easy to use, and it's considered far superior to previous gene editing technologies. So we uh, have announced a call for patent there, patents there, and uh, the, uh, the call has been well received, uh, and we will start our first facilitation meeting to see if we can come together on a pool license uh, in the month of February of 2018. Um, again, many, many parties have uh, submitted patents for consideration, um, and I think the risk here is that something this important should not be left at risk of endless patent battles and splintered licensing regimes. Um, uh, and in recognition of that, as I said, key CRISPR patent holders, including, and they, the only reason I can tell you this is because they chose to make a public announcement, uh, the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard have responded affirmatively to our public call for the creation of a global pool license. So that's one thing. In another area, we're also uh, putting together a patent pool as we speak for um, in the elect electric vehicle area, uh, in particular to the charging area for electric vehicles and batteries. Uh, and um, hopefully we'll have something to announce about that uh, at the beginning of 2018. We're, we're working it very hard. Uh, so those are areas that are somewhat different from those we've been engaged in in the past. We think they will both benefit from the pool because we think there's a, there's a lot of licensing to be done there, a lot of patents that pertain to those areas, and uh, giving people a platform, a licensing platform from which they can make their own creative applications of these technologies is a very important thing for the market uh, and the consumers who will benefit from them. Yeah, that sounds very cool and interesting what you are doing <laughs> and what you are setting up. You're, you will conquer the world of technology, basically, starting from from video codex to biotechnology. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. Yeah, that's of course, uh, you know, it has not without its challenges, Ralph. So the, the last chapter has not been written, but uh, the initial interest is very strong. Yes, um, we could go on a lot longer, I guess, but um, we have to limit our time in this interview. So this has been a very interesting interview. Um, if people have questions, where could they best reach you? Uh, they can uh, they can certainly come to our website mpegla.com. They can write me directly, uh, lhorn at mpegla.com, or they can write Tom O'Reilly, who's on this call as well, uh, t o r e i l l y at mpegla.com. 
and you'll find uh, that we are, uh, assuming, assuming the questions are serious ones, which we believe they will be, uh, we're always uh, very, very glad to uh, connect with our uh, uh, potential customer base and even those parties who are just interested in what we do. Well, thank you very, very, very much for this uh, very interesting interview. Well, it's my pleasure, Rolf, and thank you uh, for your uh, patience and for your good questions. Uh, and I wish you uh, good fortune with your uh, podcast. They, they provide a very important service to the market, and uh, I hope uh, many subscribers uh, will not only listen to mine, but to your others as well. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.